Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, October the 20th, and you're very welcome to this latest instalment of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This week, our political correspondent, Harry McGee, sat down with the former governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, who tried and failed to become the Democratic nominee for president in 2016. They talked about O'Malley's Irish connections, his upbringing and political philosophy, as well as his time as mayor of Baltimore and his sometimes highly adversarial relationship with the creator of the TV series The Wire, David Simon. Of course, the subject of Donald Trump and the presidency does come up, as do his views as a Catholic pro-choice politician on abortion. Martin O'Malley, you have uh, very strong um, Irish connections. You have Irish antecedents. Um, you have always had a very strong connection uh, with Ireland and you have been a frequent visitor to, the, to these shores. Perhaps, First of all, perhaps you can explain uh, your own Irish uh, roots and links. Sure. I mean, I'm glad to be here this week for the Urban Land Institute and their conference on Thursday, but this is not my first time to Ireland. I've probably been coming to Ireland... My first trip was when I was 17, when I was in high school, and I was the first member of my family. Uh, My my great-grandfather immigrated from uh, Galway up in the mountains in the Mam Valley back around the 1870s, 1880s. And so I was the first member of my family actually to return. And and I generally try to come back as frequently as I can. Uh, In recent years, that means at least once or twice. Uh, a year. This is one of those good years where I've been able to come come back twice. But when I was in high school, I fell into an Irish band, and we weren't very good. We only had 20 songs, but they kept paying us. So we did the same 20 songs twice in the course of the night. Soon that became 40 songs. And, and um, of course, all of the music that tells the stories of Ireland's own struggle for nationhood and, and other timeless themes. Uh, sparked in me an interest in Irish history. So there's probably, Mr. McGee, there's probably not a book in the Montgomery County Public Library on Ireland that I didn't take out at some point when I was in in high school or college and read. So Irish history has always been one of my passions and um, and it's good to be, it's always good to be in Ireland. And not an Irish band that you didn't listen to because you would have been influenced by the Dubliners and the Chieftains, by uh, Planksty, by all the big Irish bands, including the Pogues. And you're still a very good friend of Luca Bloom's apparently. Yeah, Luca Bloom has a new CD out called Refuge, which is very, very good. And uh, the Saw Doctors, Leo Moran, and and those guys kindly flew over and played both of my uh, inaugural uh, balls when I was uh, elected governor. So uh, uh, Luca Bloom, the Saw Doctors, um, and also the Pogues, Shane McGowan, we've opened for my band, humbly entitled O'Malley's March. The other two guys in the band were Schwartz and Levin. At the time, we were a trio. We couldn't damn well call ourselves Schwartz, Levin, and O'Malley. It would sound like the accident specialists or, or lawyers. So we've opened, my band's opened a couple of times for uh, Shane McGowan and the Pogues, as well as the Saw Doctors. And uh, yeah, I love the music. Music's all that keeps us here. 
Very good. On that uh, philosophical note, we move on to uh, something that is also perhaps philosophical: the uh, the world of politics. You, you, were, <laughs> it's existential. Uh, uh, absolutely. You, you were interested in in law. You became a a law student. Um, you were also interested in music, obviously. Uh, but your own interest in politics was probably uh, ignited by Gary Hart, who was the uh, who went for the presidential um, convention. Um, nearly 40 years ago now. And um, tell me a little bit about why you were so interested in Gary Hart, uh, what attracted you uh, to his brand of politics and to the Democratic Party. Well, you're going back. The, um, when I was in college, it was a time when Ronald Reagan had been elected president. And my friends and I, uh, uh, a couple of us that, that I'd gone to high school with, uh, we would always have these conversations. We were, uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe you call it precocious or maybe that's just, uh, there's probably a lot of young people that have that interest. Um, but I, I, we had the sense that Ronald Reagan was taking us down a very bad path for the country, that this notion that greed is an American value, that greed is good, and, uh, and that we need to starve the beast of our government. As Ronald Reagan said very famously, uh, government isn't part of the problem. Government is the problem. And uh, so uh, looking at the landscape of, of would-be presidential contenders, a friend of mine and I concluded that our only hope of beating Ronald Reagan was to go to a new generation of leadership. And the only person really running that year that fit that description was Gary Hart. So we uh, went in, volunteered on his campaign, and uh, learned more and more about him. Uh, the uh, People have short memories. In fact, young people don't remember that it, it, who Gary Hart was. But at the time, he was saying that if we don't become energy independent as a nation, that soon our sons will be bogged down in an endless series of desert wars, uh, whatever the, the rationale, uh, public rationale of which... Uh, the underlying truth will be that we're there to secure oil supplies. He also said that our economy is changing, that the information age is upon us, and we need to change the way we deliver uh, you know, what we teach to our children and the skills that our people need to have to compete and win in a global economy where information and knowledge are, are so much more important. So all of those things attracted me to him, as well as his worldview, the notion of that, that, that there is a global commons. The, the United States plays an essential role in maintaining the security of that commons, but in cooperation with other nations, not as some exclusive domain of a lone standing world power. Um, so all of those things attracted me to Gary Hart. I went out to Iowa. Uh, I saw that one person can make a difference and that demystified the process of actually running for office for me, which is a tremendous gift to give to a young person. Yeah, I see, I've, I've seen you use that quote before, that one person can make uh, a difference. Because when you think of the United States, such an enormous country, such a huge bureaucracy, uh, so many millions of people living there. And still, politics, symbolically at least, seems to be personified in in one person or one personality. Mm. And it's it, it's a big statement to make that one person can make a, a, a difference. How can one person make a difference in that instance? Oh well, one uh, look. Each of us is. Uh, um, we're getting more philosophical here. Sorry. I mean, each of us is. Uh, each of us uh, is a. Um, you know, we touch so many people in our lives, whether it's our immediate family or our friends. You know, one of the 
one of the most cherished old movies in the United States is that uh, Jimmy Stewart movie, A Wonderful Life. You think about the numbers of people you meet, the, the number of chance encounters that one has in one's own uh, upbringing. I mean, you didn't get to where you are without people mentoring you and seeing in you something that they believed was very powerful and potential and strong. And so if it's not about the relationship, it's not about anything. And the relationship we have as individuals makes a tremendous difference in this world. Switching channels now to to politics. I was raised in a house where my parents taught us that the only thing wrong with politics is that not enough good people bother to try. And that made a profound that that truth, that statement um, made a profound uh, impact in my life. Uh, I realized only in hindsight, uh, one of six kids, and in those days that was considered a mid-sized Irish Catholic family <laughs> in the States. Uh, one of six kids, I was raised in a household where politics uh, was talked about as a noble calling and a service to others. And... Um, Especially now in the states, what you see happening is the Democratic Party is reconstituting itself, not because of one person inside the Beltway in Washington, but because of thousands of people that perhaps never thought about running for office before, but have been so so jarred into action um, by Donald Trump's election that they're going out there and they're running. They're making that leap of faith that they can make a difference and... Um, I was with a, a woman in New Hampshire to, at the Salem Democrats uh, dinner about three weeks ago. Her name's Carrie Lerner, and she ran for office, uh, uh, not, a, not, a, you know, not a, a fresh out of college person. She's an established businesswoman, a, a real estate agent, but she ran in a district that Donald Trump had carried by 23 points, and she carried by four she won by four points. And I said, Carrie, what did you hear? What was the constant theme at the door that people were saying to you? She said, honestly, Martin, it was that they don't feel recognized. They don't feel listened to. They don't feel like their voice matters or that their leaders care. You know, that's one person makes a difference. And that's the crisis our country's going through right now is the sense that because of a lot of forces, and we've gone 12 years, I think, without wages going up in our nation, which is pretty jarring for us. We haven't had that experience in modern memory, not since World War II. There's a sinking sense among so many that they are becoming worthless, that they are becoming unseen, unrecognized, that they don't matter. And uh, that's, the, that's the, the, the healing that we need to be about as a nation right now if we're going to get our country back on track after this Trump detour. Okay, we'll return to that theme uh, a, a little um, later. Just you talk about the the, uh, the motivations and the impetus and the impulses that pro- probably propelled you into politics in the first instance. Did you always kind of know that you would go into politics, or was it the heart campaign that became the, the trigger for that, or the inspiration, or the the impetus for that? Yeah, the, I, I well, I always. I guess we were raised in a house where there are a couple of things that were given. One of those givens is that we go to mass every Sunday. The other given is that we vote. <laughs> and and uh, my parents had been involved in campaigns on behalf of their friends. And my, my mom and dad met uh, actually splicing together copy for a Young Democrats newsletter when they had both through different routes, one from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my mom from Fort Wayne, Indiana, found themselves as young people in Washington. So I I guess I had the sense that I wanted to be involved in campaigns and things. I mean, my dad would take on fall nights my, my little brother and me out to 
go give out flyers for a friend of theirs that was running for county executive at home. It wasn't, though, until the Hart campaign and actually the demise of the Hart campaign uh, when uh, something clicked and I decided, you know, one day I would like to uh, run as a candidate instead of being a behind-the-scenes person, which I thought was my strength as an organizer. Uh, that campaign for it, all the grief and the loss and the shame of how it ended in, in scandal uh, uh, ignited in me a desire to to offer my myself as a candidate and um, didn't know exactly when that might happen. As it turned out, it was at the age of 27 I ran for state senate. They tell me I lost that race on the absentee ballots by 23 votes. That's what they say. <laughs> we won't uh, delve any any uh, deeper into that, but we'll just rather than going through it, uh, seriatim. This this, uh, this statement that that that, that you make Syriatum, that that, good word. that one man can um, make a difference. Well, what difference did you make as one man as mayor of Baltimore and as governor of Maryland over two two terms? What did you leave behind? What legacy did you leave behind that, that didn't exist before you actually took on both jobs? How did this one man make a difference? Yeah, the. Look, there, there is a saying in the Talmud that if you save just one life, it is as if you've saved the entire world. And that was the ethic and the belief that I carried into my service as mayor. When I ran in 1999, I had actually thought I was getting out of politics after having served two terms on the city council. I had, uh, I had uh, uh, three little kids by that time. And my wife said, hey, man, <laughs> serving on the city council is not conducive to a good and lucrative law practice. You got to grow up. We, our kids are growing up. So I thought I'd move my law practice, my solo practice out of the city into Baltimore County. So I thought I was done. But then something strange happened that year. And it was this, that in a year when we became the most violent, addicted and abandoned city in America, nobody that could turn that around would step up to run for mayor. The leading candidate at the last minute decided that he wouldn't run and I knew the other two gentlemen, and I knew they couldn't do what needed to be done, and I felt I could. And after three very restless nights, waking up and looking in the mirror and saying, you can't run because Baltimore's a majority black city and you're white, I realized one morning, finally, that um, that, that was just a reverse way of saying that I couldn't run and serve, uh, I couldn't run, win, and serve because of the color of the skin of the people that I was offering to serve. And when I realized the hypocrisy and the bias at the heart of that uh, and held it up for what it was and cast it aside, then I was able to run with you, a fearlessness. You're saying that if, say, Baltimore was 60 percent white, that uh, as a black candidate, one couldn't present themselves by just by virtue of the fact that they were black. Yeah, or, or that maybe because people are black, that they wouldn't be fair enough to be able to consider my candidacy in a fair way. And I realized that that was a bias that I had inherent within me. And once I exercised that from my own psyche, then a tremendous peace came over me. And I was able in a fearless way to stand on a street corner in a drug-free zone and say, vote for me. And within six months, 10 of these open-air drug markets will be shut down and a safer Baltimore will be what together we can build for our kids. And that's what I did. So the campaign that year was about justice and injustice. The injustice being that we shrugged our shoulders when 350 young African-American men were killed on by each other on our streets, and we acted like there was nothing we could do about it. So we put our city on a path for the biggest crime reduction in America over the next 10 years. Now, sadly, in, 
in the last couple of years, we've slipped back to where we were before on those most violent indicators. But during my time in office, both as mayor and as governor, we saved a lot of lives, hundreds and hundreds of lives by putting more effort into drug addiction treatment. We greatly reduced overdose deaths. We made our city a lot safer. Uh, We made our public schools in Maryland the number one public schools in America. First time that had ever happened. And... um, I brought my state through the recession uh, a lot faster than other states. You ask, what is legacy? I don't know. What is legacy? Is the legacy to save one life? Is is it, as Meister Eckhart said, all about intention and let God figure out the results? I don't know what legacy is. I know from my own legacy, I'm able to look myself in the mirror and say that that, that, that we not only did we try, but we greatly succeeded if measured by the number of lives one saves. Okay, there were some controversial um, uh, and perhaps uh, what might some might consider divisive measures that were introduced, for example, for a city of with a population of about 650,000 people. I think in one year there were one million arrests. No, and people 100,000, thought, please, not oh, a million. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> 100,000 arrests, yeah, which seems to be quite, quite, quite a lot for, for the population of the city. Yeah, that, that didn't become terribly controversial until I ran for president and until the Freddie Gray riot. And then people in that context wanted to go back 14 years or 13, however many it was, and conclude, ah, a city of 650,000, 100,000 arrests in 2003 must have meant you arrested one out of six people. The truth is we were arrested the same people, 10,000 of them, time and time again until they got the message that we were no longer going to allow them to uh, make life miserable for poor people living in our poorest neighborhoods. And I would not have been reelected with 88% of the vote uh, four years, you know, Uh, after a four-year term by a majority African-American city if the myth and the cartoon that I was, you know, had people running around locking up everybody I could for everything I could, spitting on the sidewalk or throwing down a bubblegum wrapper, uh, that was was a myth kind of manufactured and sometimes for self-serving purposes in more recent uh, mayor's races and also as part of the context of the the presidential, you know, uh, combat. Uh, but the, the kernel of truth to that myth was this, that as we closed down open air drug markets, by the way, in a very collaborative way uh, with neighborhood leaders and prioritizing the most dangerous ones first, uh, we did enforce uh, to the letter of the law, every law we could in order to close down open-air drug markets in narrowly defined areas of the city one at a time, as then we followed with improvements to quality of life, to the lighting, to with CCTV cameras and other things to hold the neighborhoods. And um, uh, if I, and and that was the way we operated, which is also why when I ran for governor, my largest margins came from the poorest areas of the city where that latest myth you would think would have alienated people from me. And it would have if it were true, but it wasn't true. It was the same 10,000 guys over and over again until they got the message. Okay, I think it's the um, um, Einstein definition of badness is repeating the same mistake over and over again. I think you have to challenge some some of the perceptions that people have and kind of... Yeah, and I had hoped in the presidential campaign I might have had a greater chance to be able to talk about a really important issue for our country. I mean, you can't talk about public safety Mm. and improving it in America without also talking about race Mm -hmm. and racial injustice, given the way that public safety and racial injustice and slavery have been intertwined since our country's Mm -hmm. first days. But alas, 
I was, uh, it was not to be. The, the media narrative in our primary and Secretary Clinton's success in delaying those primary debates and then hiding them and not allowing many, all but one of them to happen in prime time meant that the only oxygen in our primary was for the protest vote. Uh, so we weren't able to talk about those issues of race and public safety. A lot of cities have actually found a way to, 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 to strike the right balance. You have to both improve public trust at the same time that you improve public safety. And it requires a more open and transparent way in the information age of policing the police, of training the police, supervising the police. Uh, and some cities like New York and Los Angeles have continued to improve on those scores. Sadly, my own hometown of Baltimore decided to, after I left, uh, 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 discard many of the things we, systems we had put in place for policing the police. Uh, and it's too bad. There's a lot cities can learn from each other. Um, and, and that's why I'm psyched to be here for the Urban Land Institute this oh. Thursday. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to the Urban Land Institute in just, just a moment. Just one, one of, of course, um, most people here, their, their view of Baltimore would have been formed by uh, the series The Wire. I know you've been asked about this a million times before, and we don't really want to dwell on it. But just a, a quick question on it. Is it something that gives a, 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 an accurate portrayal of what Baltimore was like during the time? Or is it something of a stray dog that kind of follows you around if you're asked about it constantly in interviews like this one here? A stray dog. Uh, a stray dog. Um, the... Um there are aspects that the uh, there are aspects of Baltimore that the Wire portrays uh, in a very accurate way. Uh, the the all pervasive, uh, uh, you know, um, in some neighborhoods, uh, you know, the violent crime, drug addiction, uh, the, the the all pervasive violence that seems to be characterized life in some of our poorest neighborhoods or had for many years unchecked. Uh, and um, so parts of that are accurate. Uh, other parts of it are, are very inaccurate. Uh, parts of it are, you know, it's entertainment. Uh, so the creator of The Wire was the leading police reporter for the newspaper in town. And I was the leading critic of failed policing strategies and drug addiction strategies on the city council. So we had a symbiotic relationship, Harry. I'll let you determine which of us was the egret and which was the rhinosaur. Um, but we had a symbiotic relationship, and some of those notes made it into it. Uh, he, um, uh, but, and, but in other cases, it was entirely manufactured and, and, uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, kind of vicious ways, oftentimes with a political ulterior motive behind it. Uh, and um, so, so that's on... That's on the wire. David Simon came to Baltimore, saw nothing but hopelessness and despair, and made a lot of money portraying it nationally and internationally. I came to Baltimore, saw nothing but uh, the opportunity um, to heal and save a lot of lives, and that's what I did with my creative energies. Okay. Now we move on to um, an issue that that's uh, you talk about going to mass on a regular basis uh, once a week. Well, I didn't, you know, I, I never really wore that on my sleeve or talked about it. But when one runs for president, you, know, the, you, you, you subject yourself to a higher and deeper level of scrutiny. But as my mother would say, sure, there's worse things they could say about you. <laughs> there, 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 there are indeed. There's a big debate uh, ongoing in Ireland at the moment in relation to abortion and abortion legislation. And you have been, um, you know, you, you in, as, a as a legislator, 
uh, you have taken a relatively liberal view in terms of abortion. Has that been easy to square in terms of your uh, private religious beliefs and your public persona and your public duties as a, as a legislator? The um, I was, um, I mean, no. I mean, it's not without reflection and deep and deep thinking. And I, I grew up in a house where you might call it a divided house. I mean, my father was very, very much of the opinion uh, that 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 abortion should should be regulated and 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 illegal. My mother, I think, was of a different opinion that the best public policy is to leave this to the individual conscience of women. Not that I'm to come to Ireland to speak on behalf of my mother's political views, mm-hmm. but uh, I say I mention that because not unlike a lot of. Uh, uh, families, you know, Catholic families in the United States, there were different opinions on that issue. Uh, here's, um, I never really had to deal with that on the Baltimore City Council or the issue of abortion when I was mayor. Uh, as governor, uh, I I did have to deal with it. And this is where I've come out. I consider myself to be pro-choice. And I believe that the best public policy uh, is to leave that decision to the conscience of, of women and to trust the conscience of, of women to make that decision. I believe there's some decisions that government is very, very poorly equipped to make on behalf of other people, and this is one of them. Um, Thomas Aquinas talked about uh, uh, the, the proper exercise of the coercive power of the state, the power of enforcement, uh, and and what is the, the moment at which that power should be used implicitly in, in a pluralistic society of people of many different faiths. And um, so um, all of that thinking also guided my own thinking on this, as, as well as on issues like marriage equality. I mean, I, I made marriage equality... Uh, a governor's bill when it had failed twice before in our legislature, and I got a cease and desist letter from our archbishop telling me that I'm committing a grievous sin and, and, and making other sort of implied threats. And I said, wrote back to him, I said, look, man, on this bridge between the secular and the sacred where we meet, there are a lot of issues about which we will agree. Healing, I mean, uh, uh, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, sheltering the the homeless. But on this one, we disagree. And I believe that in a pluralistic society, law should have should be applied equally to people and rights should be protected equally without regard to gender or 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 uh, or or sexual preference. And I believe that our laws as currently constituted discriminate against the children of gay couples. And I have an obligation to change that when I see that injustice. And that's what I'm going to do without ever trying to tell you how you should define sacraments within the faith that you freely choose to to lead. And and that's where I came down on those. Okay, two uh, final questions. The penultimate question is in relation to the Urban Land Institute. You're here to speak uh, tonight and tomorrow to, to its yeah, conference. Great conference. People that, people that are building and want to rebuild the modern city. And Dublin looks great, by the way, but I didn't mean to interrupt you. Mm. So just in terms of, of what are you going to say? Are you looking at the future of cities? Are you looking at the, 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 the difficulties that cities will have in relation to congestion, to public transport, in terms of planning infrastructure, in terms of fuel security and uh, uh, energy security into the future? Sure, all of these things. And it's an exciting future. I mean, two of the happy returns I came back with from an otherwise very frustrating presidential run was that the attitudes of our young people 
uh, are are very positive. They seek a world with greater connection, not division and bridges, and or rather division and walls. They seek to build bridges. Uh, the other thing I came home with was in our country anyway, that cities are far better governed today and people feel a higher level of kind of civic trust in their government and, and among one another as neighbors in a city than was true 15 years ago. Uh, we reach an, a really important threshold as one species on this planet about two years ago, and it is this. A majority of us now live in cities. That's never happened before in the history of the world. And this rise of smart cities, cities that are connected, that are using new technologies like the Internet and the Internet of Things, you know, sensors and alert systems, uh, the cloud and our ability to model our physical and our social environment gives to us as a self-governing and, and rational people capacities we've never had before to manage moving things, to anticipate events, to make better decisions, whether it's about affordable housing or transport or trash pickup or public health than we've ever had the ability to do before. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about. You know, I've been the uh, uh, chair of, uh, of a new smart cities initiative in the United States, 40, le 40 leading cities and their university partners uh, called the Metro Lab Network. And I'm going to be talking at the ULI conference in Dublin at, at the uh, conference center on Thursday morning about this rise of smart cities and about the characteristics that make a city a smart city. And it's, a, it's an evolution, really. And some cities are further along this continuum than other cities. But cities oh, that are going what, to be... What, what, what would be the exemplar in your, in your, in your view? Uh, the, the exemplar? I mean, look, I've heard it... Uh, the, the the evolution here is that cities are increasingly, I mean, in the old days, information was very much uh, something that cities controlled and kept a clamp on in city governments. If I can talk for a minute on smart governance, mm. and, and, and that, which is the topic of the talk. In the information age, people know things before their leaders. I mean, they know as much as their leaders, and usually they know it before their leaders. So in smart cities, instead of keeping the clamps on public information, they actually open up their data. They make it easier for people to see and to visualize. Uh, smart cities are, are moving from being cities that simply respond to so-called constituent calls for service or constituent questions to cities that actually deploy to alerts to where things are happening, uh, moving from the ability to make nice-looking and pretty maps to the ability to do analytics, predictive analytics, uh, deploying sensors for the air, uh, sensors on your you know, stormwater, uh, sensors. I mean, here's one example. I mean, uh, soon in Dublin, you are going to be distributing uh, solar-powered dustbins. Is that what you call them, or litter bins? Mm -hmm. Am I using the right term? Dust bins, litter bins, yeah, not yeah. trash cans. <laughs> yeah. And we all, we've all had the experience. We see what happens. The ones that get used the most kind of overflow. The, the trash and the rubbish blows all over the place and, and makes your city look cruddy. So now these dust bins are going to be deployed. There's going to be fewer of them than there were, mm. and they're going to have sensors in them. And somebody in a central office is going to be able to see where all of those uh, dustbins are and be able to tell you when they will be filled, when they need to be collected. Uh, that's one little minor kind of mundane example. But the savings that you realize, uh, the improved mm. cleanliness, and the ability through the Internet of Things 
to be able to have cheap sensors on those to be able to act in an intelligent way to keep your city cleaner is a, a metaphor for actually the larger. I mean, people might look at that and say, well, that's not a smart city. That's just a clever dustbin. Well, there is a continuum from clever to smart to intelligence where you actually understand the whole. And what I see, where I see Dublin moving and many other cities across the United States is, in, is uh, out of that sort of cleverness into the smart city and into a more intelligent understanding. It's, look, it's all about improving the quality of life for people who live in cities. And uh, to a larger extent, it's about creating more sustainable ways to live in harmony with the other living systems of this earth. And the only way we're going to do that is if we create greater density and live within our, you know, uh, footprint in more sustainable ways in rising cities. Okay, the the very last uh, question, uh, we'll go back and uh, perhaps um, look at that statement that we referred to earlier on, one person or one man can make uh, a difference. You ran for the primary in 2016. Uh, you finished third, perhaps a slightly distant third. I think you might have been disappointed by, yeah, by that. Third. I was very disappointed. You have to break a 10% threshold in the Iowa caucuses in order to go on, essentially. And we weren't, in the dynamic of things, able to break that threshold. Uh, actually, that's a 15% threshold. Is it 15%? How quickly they forget. We got up <laughs> as high as 10% in a couple of polls at the end of the year, but I wasn't able to break it. Sure. And so, so would you consider going again? Uh, and what is your opinion of the present incumbent? Do you think that he can make a, a difference? And just referring back a little to what you were uh, talking about earlier on, What's the state of the Democratic Party at the moment? Is the Democratic Party strong enough in your your estimation uh, to take on Donald Trump or whomever the Republican Party chooses at the next election cycle? Yeah, I am am diametrically opposed to everything that Donald Trump uh, uh, stands for. Uh, And I've I've said as much time and again, uh, this is an aberration for us as a country. We've never had a... We've never had a presidential candidate uh, that uh, usually the parties were strong enough to keep this sort of fringe uh, neo-fascist type of appeal from ever getting as far as Donald Trump has gotten. I mean, he is the president of the United States. Great republics sometimes make great mistakes, and we've made a big one in allowing in electing this man. And uh, we need to, but great republics also can correct their mistakes. And I think that's what the American people will do. We are, a lot of us who are in a mode of anger and retribution uh, have moved back to more of a corrective mode right now. And people might not love the Democratic Party, uh, but we're the only brake system in this careening car right now. And that is why in special election after special election at the state level, our congressional districts are still very gerrymandered. Uh, we have to fix that and reform that aspect of our politics. But in state elections where there's less gerrymandering, our candidates are doing 10 to 15 percent better in very different places, so-called deep red states like Oklahoma. We flip to Republican seats, Democratic. Our candidates are doing 10 to 15 percent better than anyone on the eve of the election would predict. So that tells me we're in a corrective mode. Look, I might run again for president of the United States. Uh, A couple of things will have to change in the course of the next year for me to believe that that is uh, uh, something that I I should and must do and and that my my friends will be able to support me in doing in a more uh, impactful way uh, in this next uh, go-around. The only thing I know for sure right now, Harry, is that the next good thing to do 
is to help other people in these upcoming midterms. There will be 36 governor's races out of 50 that will be up in 2018. The men and women that we elect to governor's offices across the country will then be able to draw fairer congressional district lines that will get us a better Congress so we don't have this aberration where Congress is far more hard right than the people of the United States uh, are in their in their attitude. So I'm going to be repurposing my leadership activities to helping others in these midterms, as indeed I've been doing all year anyway. I've been in probably 20 states. And um, and so that's what I'm going to be doing. And uh, and I'm continue to write, continue to speak, and um, continue to call forward the goodness within our country, which I believe will not be eclipsed for long. And continue to take out the guitar and sing occasionally as well, we hope. Ah, sure, why not? Martin O'Malley, it's been a Twist pleasure. my arm. And Thank you very much fiddly. indeed. Kick them to start, kick them to stop. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.